Y'all can go ahead and have a seat. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter 20. We're going to be in verses 36 through chapter 21, verse 16. If I could be honest with you for just a minute, the older I get, the harder it is for me to maintain meaningful friendships. I'm sure it's the same with some of you, if not all of you. But what if I told you that God desires for us to have deep, meaningful, and lasting friendships? Have you ever thought about that? That God has wired us to have friendship. That He has designed us to have friendship. That He has made us for companionship. That He has created us to be friends and to have friends for our own good. Consider some biblical examples, just real quick. David and Jonathan. Jonathan was King Saul's son, and David was next in line to be king. And even though Saul hated David and he sought to kill David, Jonathan stuck by David's side. That's a friendship. Then you think about Ruth and Naomi. Ruth and Naomi... Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law. And when her husband died and Naomi's husband died and their other sister-in-law's husband died, Naomi and Ruth stuck side by side because Ruth loved Naomi deeper, deeply. Naomi begged Ruth to abandon her. Go back to your own people. Go find someone else to love. But Ruth said to her, and this is amazing, she said, for wherever you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. A deep, meaningful friendship. And if we think about the most perfect relationship, we can think about the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit living in perfect unity together, in perfect relationship, perfect harmony completely together on one mission with one, one goal in mind. Perfect relationship. Now, obviously, we're not going to have perfect relationships, but God does desire for us to have relationships. But unfortunately, as we grow older, our lives tend to get in the way. And depending on the stages in life that we are in, it can as well. I mean, myself with three young kids, it's hard to have deep and meaningful relationships, but that doesn't mean that God hasn't designed us to have them. In today's text, we're going to see how important relationships are, how important friendships are, how important they were to Paul, and we will see how to build lasting friendships. We are also going to look at Paul's devotion to Jesus, but we'll get there in a minute. But before we begin, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence with thanksgiving in our hearts, to preach your word, to be with one another. Lord, I pray that as we dive into your scripture, you would illuminate the scripture for us, that we would be able to understand what it is that you're going to show us through your scripture today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin by reading the scripture. If I can get my mic to work the way I want it to. There we go. Can you all hear me okay? Yeah? Okay, good. Okay. All right. Acts chapter 20, verse 36. Here's where we go. We're going to start right there. And it says this, And when he, that's being Paul, had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part 
of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And this is uh, chapter 21, verse 1, it says, And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there, Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we set sail to Syria and landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days had ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed there with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with them. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who, binds, who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we the, and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and bringing us to the house of, of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with him whom we should lodge. So the first thing we're going to see, I know that, that, that that's a long text, but first thing we're going to see is the importance of Christian friendships. Paul finishes his time up in, with the Ephesian elders. He's instructing the church, and he was instructing them on how to lead the church in Ephesus. He bids them farewell because Paul is on a mission. And what's his mission? To get to Jerusalem before Pentecost so that he can provide Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church with the gift from the Gentile churches. That's what he's going to do. But the clock is ticking, and so he has to get moving. So he tells these Ephesian elders goodbye, and, and they're upset. They're sad because they love Paul. Remember, he had spent three years pouring his life into these guys, teaching them day and night, loving them like Jesus had loved them. He risked his life and limb for them, and they did the same for him. He rejoiced with them when they rejoiced. He wept with them when they wept. He trained them, he taught them, and he loved them deeply. You see, my family and I, we spent three years in North Carolina while I attended seminary. And while I was going to seminary, we were called to go serve a church in Georgia. And the day we left to go to Georgia, there was no shortage of tears. There was no shortage of tears. The pain was there. We knew that God had called us to go and serve him. It, Levi had grown up in North Carolina. When we moved there, he was 18 months old. So he had grown up in North Carolina. He had deep and meaningful friendships with other children. Corey had been ministered to deeply by some amazing friendships 
while we were in North Carolina. She still has a best friend that lives in North Carolina today. She had that, and it brought her out of a deep depression to develop these friendships. I had grown and matured at least a little bit while I was there, right? So it was hard for us to leave, but it was absolutely necessary. But today we have an advantage, right? We have an advantage because technology affords us the opportunity to continue to connect with people, continue to connect with those that we had left behind. Levi still FaceTimes his best friend. Corey is still in constant communication with her best friend. I still get to text some of my good friends and call some of my good friends, right? So we have this technology, but these men in Ephesus, they were never going to see Paul's face again. This is akin to him dying, essentially. They're never going to be in communication with him again. So this wasn't a, I'll see you later, or you can come back and visit. This was, I'm going and I'm not coming back. And that's hard. That is hard for anybody, especially when you spent so much time with them, especially when you have spent so much time loving them, pouring your life into them. And they were most upset because they knew this fact, that he would never be back. Because goodbyes are hard. Saying goodbye is hard. I'm reminded of this fact every time my mom comes to visit. When we moved from Texas to North Carolina, mama cried. When we moved from North Carolina to Georgia, mama cried. When she comes to visit us now and she leaves, she cries. Even though she knows that just in a few short months she's going to be back, or, or sometimes weeks, sometimes days, she'll be right back. But regardless of the circumstance, every time she has to say goodbye, it's hard for her. And it's just as hard when we have to say goodbye when we love and we cherish people deeply. But these believers weren't going to get to see their beloved friend anymore. His mission and time with them was over, or at least kind of. God was still on mission, and Paul's ministry to them was over. But what's going to happen is Paul's actually going to send a surrogate to the Ephesians, to those in Ephesus. He's going to send Timothy there to minister to them. He's also going to write a letter to them while he's in captivity. And then he's going to write letters to Timothy on how to lead the church in First and Second Timothy. So Paul's presence is still there, but it's way different than him actually being there with them. But I want you to notice how these men react when Paul is leaving. What did they do? What does true friendship look like? Well, the first thing they did was they prayed for him. They prayed for him and they prayed with him. Did you know that praying with somebody and praying for somebody is an amazing way to show them that you love and you care for them? We are at our most vulnerable when we pray. We bear our heart and our soul out to God when we pray. And at the same time while we're doing that and we're doing that in communion with other people, we are strengthening and encouraging those who we are praying for. They didn't just say, hey, Paul, we'll, we'll be praying for you. They actually prayed with them. Now, I get it. I, I understand it can feel awkward to pray with somebody, especially because we don't want to say, sound dumb, right? We don't want to say something that, that, that we're going to say wrong, or we don't want to be uncomfortable. What if, I, what if I stumble over my words? What if I can't focus, right? But can I let you in on a little secret? When you pray with someone, especially if you are praying for them, they aren't looking for the most polished or pristine prayer. They are just encouraged that you are praying for them. They are blessed that you are praying for them. Prayer doesn't have to be long with flowerly language, right? In fact, Jesus condemns those who pray uh, with repetition and empty phrases. God knows your heart. He hears you. Just talk to him. Talk to him with other people. And as a pastor, I've had an opportunity to pray 
with a lot of people. And it's a blessing to get to pray with them regularly. And in every time and in every circumstance that I've prayed with somebody, I have never heard one complain about the prayer. Nobody has ever complained about the prayer. Whether it was too long or too short, that it was incoherent or anything else. Well, at least they haven't said anything. They may have thought it, right? But they didn't say it, right? They are just excited that someone took the time to pray with them, to pray for them. Now, I want to give you a little bit of permission as your pastor. As your pastor, I give you the permission to pray short prayers, short and simple prayers. I just implore you to actually pray for someone, to pray with someone, to encourage them through that. It doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be professional. Just pray for someone. Just pray for them. Pray for one another and pray with them. Notice that the Ephesians were also affectionate with Paul. You see that in verse, 20, or verse 37. They embraced and they kissed Paul. Now I can admit, I'm an affectionate guy. But COVID has put a real damper on affection. COVID has put a real damper on brotherly affection. Handshakes are sometimes okay, but there's nothing better than a good big bear hug. There's nothing better than wrapping your arms around someone and showing them that you love them. There's nothing better than coming home from a long day's work and your, your kid or your spouse wrapping their arms around you and hugging you, embracing you. An appropriate human touch and affection shows you that you care about somebody, shows them that you care about them. Think about it. We've been called to be a family. We've been called to be part of God's family. And most healthy families show affection toward one another. There's something special about getting a hug from a loved one. This is as it should be in church as well. We should not be afraid to hug one another, to show affection towards one another. And I want to put this out here right now, that if you ever just need a hug, all you have to do is come and tap me on the shoulder and say, Josh, I need a hug. And I'll be the first to give you a hug. Okay? I want you to know that I love you, that I care about you, that, that I do love you. And can you love someone who you're afraid to touch, who you're afraid to be affectionate with? Can you truly love them? Most of us sit here and we long for physical affection. The, the isolation that we've been through through the last year and a half has, has even shown and, and magnified the fact that we long to be in relationship with other people. So if we long for that, don't you think that the person sitting next to you, the person sitting across from you, longs for that as well? Now, if you have been abused or hurt by someone and you don't want to participate in physical touch, that's completely understandable. But if you're comfortable, you should be affectionate with others. You should be affectionate with one another. It's because it's important that we don't just say that we love one another, but that we show that we love one another. And in Acts... Uh, in, in Chapter 21, verse 1, it says this. I'm just going to read the first part of it. And it says, And when we had parted from them and set sail. So, and we have parted from them. Now, the Ephesian elders didn't want to let them go. In fact, this, this parted from them word, that's probably not the best translation. The best translation would probably be, and when we tore ourselves apart from them. When we ripped ourselves apart from them. That's how much they, they didn't want to let go. They didn't want to be away. So they had to tear themselves away from each other. There's pain and there's anguish in saying goodbye, especially when we know that they may never see their friend again. So it's okay to show emotion. It's okay to hold on a little tighter. It's okay to wrap your arms around someone 
But we have to know that there are greater things that are happening when we're following after Jesus. This is what we call a gospel goodbye. That the pain and the heartache is still there but we, because we don't want people to leave. But when they leave, it's for the good of the gospel. No, no friendships, not all friendships, are meant to last forever. Sometimes we make good friends and we're friends forever. Sometimes leaving is what God has called us to do. And yes, it will be painful. But we have to remember that if we depart for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's kingdom, then we are doing something greater than friendship. Let me just pause real quick just to rest everybody's. I'm not going anywhere. Last week when I I had this sermon about friendships and a goodbye, I had people worried that I was leaving. I'm not going anywhere, okay? I'm just preaching the text. I just wanted to, to lay that out there for you, okay? I'm here. But as we follow Christ, we have to be willing and able to forsake some things as we pursue him. This is what it means to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow after him. But again, if it's for the sake of the gospel, there's no better reason to say goodbye to somebody, to, to push someone on, to, because they're going to preach the gospel and expand God's kingdom. Now, chapter 21 is the end of the beginning for Paul, or the beginning of the end of Paul, for Paul. If you notice, real quick, there's a slight shift in the pronouns. We see some we in this section. This means that Luke is now traveling with him. This happens a couple times in the book of Acts. In chapter 16, it happens. In this chapter, it happens. And then uh, in Acts 27, it happens. Now, we get a firsthand account of everything that's happening. Okay? So chapter 21, Luke is really showing and driving at the similarities between Paul going to Jerusalem and Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. One commentator put it this way, this journey motif is strongly reminiscent of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem in the synoptic gospels or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The same forebodings mark Jesus' journey, the same strong resolve on Jesus' part, the same misgivings on the part of his disciples. Paul is now walking in the footsteps of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. He's willingly submitting his life to his calling and to his Savior. And when they arrive they, they, one of the places they get to is Tyre. And when they get to Tyre, they have to, they have to uh, unload the cargo on the ship. So they have several days where they can stand there and they can reach out to the disciples there. One thing I want you to note is that Paul didn't plant the church in Tyre. It was entirely planted by someone else. He had no ties to these men, no ties to these disciples, but he knew that there was a church there. So he went and sought out these disciples. In fact, in verse 4 he said, and he sought out the disciples. We stayed there for, de- for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jer- Jerusalem. Now this verse right here, Acts 21 verse 4, has given pastors and commentators and theologians fits. Okay? And I'll tell you why in just a second. And let's look at, at something that has been said previously. In Acts chapter 19 verse 21, it says this. Now after these events... Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, he says this, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me. And then in this verse, verse 4 of chapter 21, it says this, and I have sought out, or, and through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. All right, so what's happening here? Luke tells us that Paul has resolved in the Spirit and is constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. But here he's telling us that these disciples in Tyre are through the Spirit telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. 
So who's wrong? Is Paul wrong? Are the disciples wrong? Is Paul misinterpreting what God is saying? Are the disciples entire wrong in misinterpreting what they're hearing from the Spirit? Or is the Holy Spirit talking out of both sides of his mouth? Well, we can immediately exclude that one. The Holy Spirit's not talking out both sides of his mouth. He's given a mission. So then we have to conclude that either Paul or the disciples are misinterpreting or misapplying what's being said. So here's where most people agree. And I'm most people. The Holy Spirit reveals to the disciples entire that there are hardships, trials, and pain that await Paul in Jerusalem. They don't want Paul to have to endure those hardships. They don't want Paul to have to go into Jerusalem. They wanted him to avoid any pain. They wanted to prohibit Paul from going because of their love for Paul. So they're interpreting what the Holy Spirit has said. The Holy Spirit has revealed something to them, and they're saying, oh, because he has revealed it to us, then we are going to try to prevent him from doing it. In fact, they don't just tell him once. A better translation is they kept telling him. For seven days, they repeated over and over and over again, don't go, Paul, don't go, Paul, don't go, Paul. Over seven days, don't go, Paul. But they're wrong in their interpretation. They're wrong in their application of what the Spirit revealed to them. Just because God revealed it to them that he was going there doesn't mean that they could stop it from happening, or that they should stop it from happening. But their concern and their love for Paul was driving them to try to stop him. Yet Paul was resolute. He was resolute in his desire and his will. Sometimes the most well-intentioned people and loving people in our life will be wrong about what God's will for your life is. They may see the dangers up ahead. They may know the hardships that you're going to face. They may beg you to change your mind. They may be too blinded by their feelings about you to see what God is doing through you. But if God has called you to it, then don't let them distract you. But God has put people in your life. And when he puts people in your life, you ha it's, it's good for you to listen to them. There needs to be a, sec a, a system of checks and balances in our life. We need others in our lives to help us to see more clearly. And that's what they were doing. They were telling Paul, but Paul was clarified and solidified and constrained in the Spirit to continue going. But sometimes, just as they might be blinded by their feelings and love towards us, we can be blinded by our stubborn-headedness and hard-headedness. So even if we disagree with somebody, seeking counsel of other Christians in your life is an important step to maturity because we don't live on an island. Our life ought to be based around community. In fact, Proverbs, I'm going to read three Proverbs for you real quick. Proverbs 15.22 says this, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. Proverbs 19.20, Listen to the advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Proverbs 12.15, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So it's important for us to listen to advice. Sometimes we take that advice, sometimes we don't because we feel God pulling us another way. But it's important to have counsel with other people. When you have decisions to make in your life, God has put people in your life to help you make those decisions. Specifically, believers that you may not agree with or may, not, or may agree with. But it's good to listen to them. This is wisdom in action. Listening to other people is wisdom in action. Don't try to be making decisions on your own all the time. Listen to people. 
You and God may have a different interpretation of the message than your friends, but God has placed them there to bounce ideas off of you and perhaps to clarify the situation. So after spending seven days in Tyre, it's time for Paul to leave, and and him and his posse are going to continue their journey. Before they depart there, there was a gathering at the beach. There was a gathering at the beach where the disciples and their wives and their children gather to pray with Paul and say a farewell to him. Again, we see the importance of praying with one another. We see the importance of community, of caring for one another. These disciples entire didn't know Paul prior to his showing up. They may have heard about him, but they didn't know him. So why did they care so much about him? Why did they plead with him not to go? Why did they act toward him in a similar way that the Ephesian elders, who he had spent three years with, acted? Because they had a genuine love for him. They saw Paul as their friend. Now, how is that possible since this is the first time that they had met him? Well, to answer that question, we first need to answer this question. What are friendships built upon? What are friendships built upon? They are built upon and come from a commonality, a common interest, a common something. Your friends and you have something in common, right? They are not the same for each one of your friends, but there's something there. I have friendships that are built upon studying theology together, right? I have friendships that are built upon when I used to play video games. I have friendships that are built upon hobbies, proximity, and any other kind of commonality. Deep friendships are also built on circumstances. Sometimes if someone has gone through something similar to you, that's a good friendship to have. I have heard that when you're in the trenches with someone, the depth of friendships can be greater than any of other one. Friendships can be built on a love for hunting, a love for fishing, a love for family, a love for books, a love for food, TV, whatever. There's a starting point for friendship. But do you know what builds the deepest and most meaningful friendships? What's the deepest and most meaningful commonality? Jesus. Jesus is the most deepful, deep and meaningful commonality. A love and devotion for Jesus builds deep and meaningful friendships. Why? Because if we belong to him, then we share something that surpasses all of these other foundations. We have a unifying spirit within us, the Holy Spirit within us, that binds us together. These people entire love Paul not based on knowing him well, but because they love Jesus and they share a love of Jesus with Paul. They love Jesus. The love of Jesus allows for us to be grounded in something greater than our preferences and our personalities. Aggies and Longhorns can be friends with Jesus as the foundation. People from different ethnic backgrounds can be friends with Jesus as their foundation. Young people, old people, Educated people, uneducated people, rich people, poor people, extroverts, introverts, Democrats and Republicans can all be friends if they have a foundation in Jesus. If Jesus is their foundation, we can be friends with them and have deep and meaningful. We can disagree on if the Aggies or the Longhorns are better, but we have a foundation in Jesus. When Jesus is the foundation of our friendship, he overcomes all of these man-made boundaries, and he ties us together more deeply 
and more meaningfully. That's why people who never met Paul could have such a deep and loving affection for him because they loved Christ in him. They love him because Jesus loves him and they love Jesus. So we don't have to look alike. We don't have to talk alike. We don't have to act like each other to be friends as long as we love the way that Jesus loves. Too often we let things that don't matter get in the way of developing relationships. Let your love for Jesus drive you to love others. And if they love Jesus, let that drive your friendship. Paul and his companions then make their way to Caesarea in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 21. In Caesarea, they go to Philip's home. I don't know if you remember Philip. Philip was one of the original seven deacons that were appointed to the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 6. He is the first missionary to Samaria in Acts chapter 8, and he's also the first missionary to preach to an Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8 as well. So Philip is on a, has a ministry of his own. Now some 20 years or so have passed since he began to live in Caesarea, since Philip's began to live in Caesarea, but his work continues. He's an evangelist. He's telling other people about the good news of Jesus Christ, and he's seeing people come to love Jesus. His witness is strong. In fact, he's got four unmarried daughters that prophesied. Now, why are prophesying daughters important? Why is that little tidbit in there? Good question. I'm glad you asked. It demonstrates that the work of the Spirit is alive and well in Caesarea, that the gifts of God are being given to those who love and trust Jesus. It also fulfills Joel 2:28, which says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And this is the same section of Scripture that Peter preaches at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus is a king and the Spirit is being poured out. This also serves as a reminder that Paul isn't the only one doing ministry. Ministry is happening all over the world apart from Paul. And not only is it do, happening all over the world apart from Paul, it's being fruitful. You don't, have to, you don't have to have the same gifting as Paul or as your preacher or as people that you admire to be fruitful in ministry. You just have to be willing to listen to God and preach the gospel. Now, while they're in Caesarea, we're reintroduced to this guy named Agabus. Agabus made his debut in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. He's a prophet, and he steps on the scene in Acts chapter 11, and he prophesies, or he sees that there's an impending famine that's going to come over the whole earth. Now he comes and he prophesies. Oh, and that was fulfilled, by the way. Now he appears and he speaks a prophecy over Paul. And just like the Old Testament prophet, prophets, he likes to use an object lesson. He likes to give a vis visual representation of what's going to go on. So he takes Paul's belt, which would have been wrapped around Paul several times. It was a long piece of cloth. And he binds his hands and he binds his feet and he demonstrates that this is what's going to happen to Paul if he goes to Jerusalem. That he's going to be bound in chains when he goes to Jerusalem. Agabus gives this prophecy but he doesn't comment on it. He just says this is what's going to happen. But now all of Paul's friends that are with him, all his companions that are with them, that have seen this journey, have known this journey was coming, they, they start to get worried. And they start urging Paul not to continue. And it says in verse 12 of Acts chapter 21, it says this, when we heard this, we, 
and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. All of Paul's friends and companions saw and heard what awaited Paul. They were worried about their friend. They were worried about the mission. They were worried that Paul was making a mistake, but Paul could not be persuaded. He could not be convinced to abandon. And he says in Acts chapter 21, verse 13 and 14, Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the, of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Paul has a deep devotion to Jesus. He loves his friends, but he loves Jesus more. Paul was not worried about his life. He was not worried about the things that awaited him. He was most concerned with obeying and following Jesus. He was ready to die for the cause of Christ. He was ready to give up his freedom for Christ. He was ready to sacrifice it all for Jesus. Reminds us of what he says in Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. His very heartbeat was to bring glory to God through obedience. He knew how much Jesus had given, and he was willing to give just as much because the name of Jesus is greater than the name of Paul. The name of Jesus is greater than Paul's desires, than his freedom, and even than his life. I wish more people who claim to be followers of Jesus would get this, that Jesus is better than our situation, that Jesus is better than our earthly desires, that Jesus is better than our own plan for our life. Simply put, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. If you just repeat that phrase over and over again, just remember, Jesus is better. If we truly love Jesus if we are truly devoted to Jesus, if we truly desire to follow Jesus, we must be willing to lay down our life for him. He isn't going to ask all of his followers to take the sword for him. He's not going to ask all of his followers to lay down their life physically for him. He isn't going to ask all of his followers to be in prison for him. But he does ask all of us to lay down our desires for him, to give up something to follow him. That may be relationships. That may be your money to be more generous. That may be to quit your job. That may be to commit yourself to being a missionary. I don't know what he's going to ask you to do. I can't guarantee what he's going to ask you to do. But I can tell you that he's going to ask you to give up something. Because you can't hold on to everything and follow Jesus. It weighs you down. It weighs you down. It's not going to be something that's going to be easy to give up either. If it was going to be easy to give up, then it wouldn't be called a sacrifice. What he asks you to give up may even sound counterintuitive to what you think his plan is. Just think about it real quick. Didn't it sound just a little bit counterintuitive for Paul to go and be imprisoned? He could have gone and he could have planted more churches. He could have made more disciples. He could have done more. Or at least that's what we would think. But I want to assure you that God knows what he is doing. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it. He is working everything out for his glory and for his kingdom. Because of Paul's obedience, he will eventually get an all-expense-paid trip to stand before Caesar and proclaim the gospel. On top of that, he will get to witness to people while he is in chains. He will write four letters while he is in prison that we can still read today. 
Those are Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through 14. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's sacrifice becomes his witness. Paul's devotion is impacting those who would never have heard the word of God. Not only that, but Paul's sacrifice and his devotion strengthens and emboldens others. Paul doesn't let his circumstances dictate his attitude or his witness. In fact, he uses his circumstances to be a greater witness because he stays devoted to Jesus. God has planted us exactly where he wants us to be. Rest assured that he is in control even when we can't see it. Finally, Paul and his crew depart from Caesarea and make their way to Jerusalem, and they meet a new friend. Nason hosts these men, and he hosts them not knowing who was coming. Remember, Paul was traveling with a bunch of Gentiles, and they wouldn't be accepted into most Jewish homes. But Nason welcomes them with open arms. Nason was an early disciple, probably one converted at Pentecost. He was an Hellenistic Jew, and that was probably one of the reasons that he welcomed them into his home. He was hospitable when others wouldn't be. So what does this passage teach us? How can we understand and implement what we see here? First, we are designed for friendship. If you don't have deep and personal relationships, deep and personal friendships with other Christians, you are missing out on what it means to be a Christian, on how it is to live a life following Jesus. We were created for relationships. That's one of the ways that we grow, one of the ways that we mature, one of the ways that we are kept in check. If you don't have relationships with fellow followers of Christ, then you aren't living like Jesus. Jesus had a group of friends, 12 disciples. He had three that were really close to him, James, John, and Peter. Paul had his group of friends, his disciples that he walked around with. You need a group of friends, or at least a friend, that was following Jesus as you're following Jesus. You need to let people see you. Let people know you. Be open to them. The Christian life is not a life that we can live with a lone ranger mentality. We need to seek out friendships. And if you don't know how to seek out friendships, ask God to provide them for you. If you need a friend or you need someone to talk to, I'm always here for you. I want to talk to you. I want to be your friend. But don't only just look for friends, but be a good friend. And how can you be a good friend? By practicing hospitality, inviting people over to your home, inviting people to hang out with you at the coffee shop, going to grab lunch with someone. Show them that you love them. Show them that you care about them. Some people are gifted with the spiritual gift of hospitality. They love having people at their house. But all of God's people should be hospitable. Some of us will be better at it than others, but we are all called to be hospitable. We also need to show affection towards one another. We all show affection in different ways. Like I said earlier, I'm a hugger. Some people may just be a high-fiver. 
Someone may just be a verbal encourager. But regardless, be affectionate towards one another. Show one another that you love each other. We also can pray for one another. Prayer is important in all relationships. It's specifically important in good Christian friendships. When you have a difficult decision that you need to make or a problem that you have, seek counsel. Seek wise Christian counsel that are going to give you biblical answers because we don't live on an island. God has placed people in your life to help you to make those hard calls because sometimes those calls can be really hard. While we are designed to be in relationship with others, we are created to worship Jesus. When we come to Jesus, we have to be devoted to him. I heard one preacher put it this way. Love people, but love Jesus more. Love Jesus more. When Jesus asks you to lay something aside, willingly do it. Even when others may think it's crazy. Because Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Do what Jesus wants and he will satisfy your every longing. He will grant you the grace to endure hardships. To endure difficult decisions. To endure the sacrifice that he's asked you to lay down. He will make you better for it. Listen, you may be sitting here thinking that you have great friendships. And if you do, I am so happy for you. But do you have a friendship with the king of the universe? Do you know Jesus? Because Jesus is the best friend that you can have. He wants to be your friend. But the only way that you can make that happen is if you submit your life to him. Jesus told us what a great friend would do. He says in John 15, 13, that greater love has no one than this than, to, than someone lay down his life for his friends. And guess what, friends? Jesus laid down his life for you. That's exactly what he did. Whatever it is that you're holding on to, I want you to know that Jesus is better. Following Jesus is better. And if you don't know that Jesus is better, if you have never given your life to him, he wants you to cry out to him because you are a sinner in need of grace. You are destined to face the wrath of God unless you turn from your sin and embrace Jesus through faith and trust. When you do that, he invites you into the most amazing and messy family you can ever imagine. He will give you some of the deepest and most meaningful relationships imaginable. But I want to assure you that following Jesus is not easy. He demands that you sacrifice your desires and your affections. He will either give you new ones or he will reshape the ones that you have to glorify him. But he is calling out to you today. Will you respond to him? Will you answer him? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that was shed so that we could have a relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that as we enter into this time of, of, of singing praises, Lord, of of reflecting on what you've done for us, Lord, that you would touch our hearts and our minds and our souls, Lord, that we would glorify you in these last couple of songs of worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray.